0: to is what I call in this message Habakkuk then and now. I've already talked a little bit about my concern and uh, this message may or may not be like anything that you've heard before. Uh, I trust it's biblical and uh, it borderlines being political. I don't mean it to be political and so don't read into that please. I, what I'm trying to do is to look at the culture, look at the direction that we are heading or seem to be heading, and then try to to uh, exegete it, try to understand it, try to, to, to see what's going on, to learn what's going on, to learn what's behind what's going on, and help the body of Christ think through how are we to respond. And so that's what we're hoping to do this morning. <clears throat> Oops, didn't want to get there. We'll just, let me go back. We'll stay right there for now. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Some of you may be able to relate to this. Life was very simple. The first color TV was 1954. 1954. Uh, my wife and I, we uh, happen to have satellite TV. Some of you may have cable. And we have the wonderful opportunity of seeing some of these early family Uh, not sitcoms necessarily, but like My Three Sons. How many remember My Three Sons? There you go. Leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. When my wife and I want to escape, that's what we do. We've got them saved, we turn them on, and we just go back to the, the simple days of the 1950s and 60s where moms were moms and dads were dads and kids were kids and respect was respect. And the other night, we were watching a Leave it to Beaver episode. And here was, this was like the third season, 1958. Here was older brother Wally putting a tie on the Beaver, the younger brother, talking about going to Sunday school. Now, this was 1958 on a public system, public TV show, talking about going to Sunday school. That would not work today. Back in those days, there was patriotism. I can remember growing up in, in elementary school. Some of you may remember this, singing the, the military theme songs. You remember that? We used to sing the military theme song, give the Pledge of Allegiance. Our schools celebrated Christmas. There were major scenes. We'd sing the, the Christmas carols. This was public school. It was just a part of what we did. But then in the 1960s, things began to change. We'll remember the Vietnam War protests. Something you may not know, a lot of us knew then, we experienced it. Others go back, we know who we're talking about, the Beatles and how popular they were. If you remember the first part of the Beatles' performance, what a career, whatever you want to call it, it was a lot of love songs, just upbeat stuff, and it was just, and then all of a sudden in the middle it changed, and they became more protests and trying to speak into the culture. I saw a documentary one time, and you'll remember Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan spoke to them. He was more of an activist with his music. And he talked to the Beatles and said, you could have a great impact on this culture if you use your, your music to impact the culture. And so right in the middle, they changed their emphasis and things began to change the way that they were approaching their, their music. There was the free love movement, which was a movement to keep government out of our bedrooms. Today, we rush forward, fast forward to today, and it seems like things up is down. Down is up at times. Right seems to be wrong at times. Wrong seems to be right at times. Our culture seems at times so chaotic. Anything goes. Anything can be explained. Anything can be rationalized. And to challenge any of it is to be considered to be intolerant or a bigot. We are to be tolerant. We are to accept anything. That's just what our culture has begun become. There seems to be so much division now. Everything becomes divisive. As we well know, vaccines are divisive. Masks are divisive. Now even bathrooms have become an issue. Who can use what bathroom? And I could go on, and you know the list goes on and on and on. Well, as I consider all of this, in fact, this goes back about a year and a half, as friends were coming to me and saying, Steve, help us understand what's going on. What came to my mind was the book of Habakkuk. And so I've put together a study from Habakkuk and some other things that I want to share with you. You're the first ones to hear it. So you're the first ones. I'm trying it on you, and let's see how it goes. So I've entitled it Habakkuk then and now, and as I went over what I was going to be talking about and even what I've talked about already with my my daughter, she said, Dad, it sounds so gloomy and dark. Is is everybody going to leave there feeling depressed? And I said, I don't think so, because the story has a, a happy ending, and we hope to get there before we're finished. So now we'll look at the background to Habakkuk. Just a quick background. The kingdom of Israel was united under Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings. When Solomon died, uh, the kingdom became divided in 931 BC. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. If you ever have a problem when trying to remember which was north and which was south, remember that I comes before J. That's how you remember. I and J, Israel and Judah. So there was Israel. And in 722 BC, Assyria came and and took Israel captive. But then the orange line shows they retreated because Babylon was threatening Assyria. So rather than Assyria being able to finish their captivity and going down through Judah, the southern kingdom, they retreated to protect their homeland. In the south was Judah. Manasseh was probably the worst king, and you can read about him in Second Kings chapter 21. He got Israel, or Judah, involved in idolatry, witchcraft, built altars to Baal, he, he created an image of Asherah and put it in the temple. He worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars and a variety of other things. This is what he brought Judah into. But then, following Manasseh was Josiah, one of the better kings, if not the best king. He served from 639 B.C. to 608 B.C. And I want to read a couple of verses out of Second Kings chapter 23, beginning of verse 24. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written in the book of Helkiah, the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, Who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. However, the Lord did not turn from his fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah. Also from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city, which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. So even though Josiah was bringing these reforms, God had not forgotten what Manasseh had done to Judah. Well, Josiah was killed by King Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Egypt was an ally of Assyria. Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim followed uh, Josiah and returned Judah to the sins of Manasseh. And so in in 612, Babylon had captured Assyria and they were beginning to threaten Judah. And it's at that time that Habakkuk wrote his prophecy. So as we we look at the book of Habakkuk, where it begins is with his complaint. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exits. And contention arises, therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked around the righteous, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. The wicked, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, surround the righteous, the way that Habakkuk was describing God's people in Judah. So, what was God's response? In chapters 5 <clears throat> and verses 5 to 11, God says, Look among the nations and observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe if you, were, if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And you could go down through verse 11. We won't read all those verses, but basically, God says, my response to your questions is that I am sending the Chaldeans to take you captive. And they're a fierce, wicked people. And they will not treat you kindly. That's what God was doing in that day and what he was warning Habakkuk of. So then, in beginning in verse 12, we see Habakkuk's, Other question, God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things, without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away like a net, and gather them together in the fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. So essentially, Habakkuk's saying, but God, they're worse off than we are. And you're using them? To judge us, how can a righteous God do such a thing? And then, when we come to chapter two, verse one, at the end of that, I love this. Habakkuk says, "I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he shall will speak to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved." So he just I've complained. I've got out what what I'm concerned about. Now I'll just see what God has to say to me, how he will reprove me. And so we get God's response, and I'm not going to read those verses. Basically, what he is doing is he is saying the day will come when the Chaldeans will also be judged. And in, in several verses, verses 9, 12, 15, and 19, he says, Woe to him who gets evil gain without his house. He's talking about the Chaldeans. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city without bloodshed. Those are the Chaldeans. Verse 15, woe to you who, who make your neighbors uh, drink. He's talking about the Chaldeans. In verse 19, woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher. In other words, idols. So he's saying, woe to the Chaldeans. Yes, I'm going to use them to judge you, but they will be judged eventually. So what I want to do now is switch our emphasis, our focus, to what I call Habakkuk now. We've already talked about the 50s and 60s and how simple they were and how things are beginning to change Or in the 60s. I mentioned Well, even before we get to to this, I want to get that off the screen. In my view, as I go back and think about the history since the 60s, there are at least four Supreme Court events, three in particular, that I think turned the tide. The first one in 1963 was when the Supreme Court of the United States took prayer out of the public schools, 1963. 1963. 1973, in the Roe v. Wade decision, they legalized abortion. In 2015, what is known as the Obergefell decision, they legalized same-sex marriage. And to me, those were the, the three straws, the third one that broke the camel's back. And it was in 2015, this is just me speaking, I thought, that's it. We have now gone over the edge. But even in more recent decisions, 2019 in the Bostock decision, it extended civil rights beyond just race, which was the original 1964 Supreme Court decision, to now extend to sexual orientation. So those involved in the LGBTQ movement, which is very, very uh, powerful and very active, they were brought into this. And we are told we cannot discriminate against them in any way. In one sense, that's, that's true. But what that did then was, as we know, began to put cake decorators and flower arrangers on the spot because now they were expected to participate in the ceremonies of same-sex marriage, to be an example. So again, these are the things that were begin- are beginning to put pressure on our culture. Now we can look at this. Al Moler is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he wrote this book several years ago, We Cannot Be Silent. And what he does in this, he starts out by saying are the issues that we're dealing with didn't start with same-sex marriage. And he goes all the way back and here's how he tracks it when what he calls the sexual revolution. He says the decline started in 1969 when uh, Ronald Reagan, governor of California, signed a bill of no-fault divorce. So that gave people permission just to end a divorce for any reason. Until then, that was not the law. And that California law swept the country to where no-fault divorce was allowed, so that opened the door to just easily end marriages. And what I want us to think through here is the disintegration of the family unit. Then he talks then he talks about the next step was the birth control pill. And what that did is it gave couples an opportunity to come together, have relationships sexually, but not have the consequences of having children. Then the adopt be then, then for same-sex couples being able to adopt children, then, then the medical field, the technology field, science field in vitro fertilization now gave the possibility to have babies without having sexual relationships. And so what God intended from the beginning was one man, one woman, becoming one flesh, having children, raising a family. It was a package deal. I like what one commentator or one writer says, that this was as normal and as built into the fabric of culture And creation is gravity. Gravity has been there. It's been a part of creation from the beginning. This one commentary says, the commentator writer says, marriage, this kind of marriage and family has been a part of the fabric of civilization from the beginning. But now we're beginning to see that torn apart. So now couples can have sex without babies. They can have babies without sex. They can have... They, they don't have to be married. Everything has become normal. Uh, heard a statistic the other day that now 24% of the educated women, meaning college educated, are now having children out of wedlock. And what this has become is rather than children being, being a prize from the Lord for us to nurture and to love and to raise Now it's becoming more that children are there to fulfill me and make me more happy. And so it's been completely flipped around in the way that we look at children and family. By the way, that 24% is up from 4% in 1996. Then there is another book. This is more recent The Gathering Storm, where Moeller writes, and he does an amazing amount of research. All of this is documented. The gathering storm over Western civilization. The gathering storm over the church. The gathering storm over human life. That's the abortion issue. The gathering storm over marriage and family. How many of you know the term polyamory? You know that term? Poly means many. Amor, love. In in Massachusetts now, and it's beginning to think through in other areas, is Who's to say that three people can't be married? Or three people form a family? Or four? Or five? And so polyamory now is this philosophy that any number of people can get together, register as a family, any number of adults, men, women, have children, and that's called a family. That's polyamory. And that's starting to be talked about in the dark rooms of our culture. Also, the gathering storm over sex, over gender and sexuality, the generational divide, and the gathering storms over religious liberty. And as you read these books, and I, I'm, this is why I'm reading them, I'm wanting to be informed, there is so much going on in the background and beneath the surface that we don't even know about because it's not in the headlines. And there is a major storm gathering off of our cultural coastline. And the storm has already begun. In this particular book, authored by John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel, I won't get into who they are, but a practical guide to culture. This is a book for families, for parents, even grandparents, for their children, for their grandchildren, to help to understand the, the culture and to navigate the culture. They talk about the information age, the identity crisis that so many young people are experiencing, the challenge of pornography, what's called the hookup culture, which is two people get together and say, hey, let's hook up, let's have an evening together, go to bed together, the hookup culture, uh, the challenges of the LGBTQ uh, community, gender, racial tensions, media, education. And in this book, they, they describe all of this And then there's a leader's guide on how to work this through with your families, with your children. There's another organization that I've been following, Rossio Christi. The CEO is Corey Miller. They're on about 150 campuses uh, from sea to shining sea. And they do evangelistic apologetics with students and faculty. I heard an interview where Corey Miller said that our campuses have been overrun by Marxists, Marxist professors. That's him speaking, that's not me. And there are on 150 campuses, and they, they would be a group that knows. Another book is Cynical Theories. These two authors, uh, James Lindsay, is actually an atheist. But if you were to read this book, It's written like they're one of our own. The only thing I disagree with on this is is his answer to what's going on. He believes that people are basically good, and if you just leave people alone and give them enough time, they'll work through their problems. As an illustration, racism is something that's all over all the headlines, whatever that means and whatever is true about it. We know it's an issue. We know it's talked about. His point is that from from times past to the current, there's been improvement. Whatever you want to say, there's been improvement. And he says, let's just keep doing what we're doing and continue the improvement, where the activists say, no, we don't want to take time. We want it all right now, and we won't get into that. But I would, as I read this, I said, such good information. And what he does is he begins by explaining the principles of the postmodern worldview and that we you've probably heard postmodernism some of the some of the principles and i'm i'm going to make a point here in a moment this is background is that objective knowledge is not obtainable objective knowledge is not obtainable which means that truth cannot be known that's a postmodern principle and those in power decide what can be known and how to know it that's very crucial those in power choose what can be known and how it can be known. So that right there says people are looking for power because then you can define what can be known and how. Then there's power in language. So there's the idea of controlling the narrative, controlling the language to get into power. And then they get into cultural relativism, the loss of the individual over the the universal. In other words... You are not an individual, whether white, black, brown, yellow, you're not an individual, you're a part of a corporate group and the postmodernist wants to work with the group, not the individual. Therefore, you will see some, and can I just use this as an illustration? Please understand, this is not political, this is an illustration. Uh, We just had uh, a recall election, or they had in California, and one of the candidates who wanted to become the governor replacing Newsom was a black guy, Larry Elder. And so the opponent said, he's not black. He has a black voice for whites. Category. He wasn't an individual. He was identifying with a category. So that's how the postmodernist sees this. And then after explaining these principles, he shows how now those principles are being applied in areas of post-colonial theory, seeing everything as colonialism in the past. He talks about, and don't, don't, don't rush ahead with this term, queer theory, but in this term, queer just means anything that's not natural. So totally opposed to everything that is normal, natural. We've heard a lot about CRT, or CRT, critical race theory, intersectionality. It goes on to feminism, gender studies, disabilities and fat studies, saying, I don't even want to get into it. Social justice scholarship and on and on and on and on, and and how these postmodern principles are now driving all these conversations. Well documented, very informative. And one thing they point out is this, that facts, logic, science, and even math are simply tools of those in authority to keep the others oppressed. And so you can point out a fact, you can point out a scientific discovery, and somebody may say, that doesn't work because you don't know my experience. So in postmodern theory that has worked into all of these areas, and you've seen this, experience is what counts. Facts and science do not. Well, you don't know my experience. You haven't walked in my shoes. You need to listen to me. That becomes the authority. And so all of these things are what are driving our culture today. There's a book that I don't even have a picture of it here. One last one that I want to mention. It's called Live Not by Lies. The author is Rod Dreer, a believer. He's a blogger also and I don't want to get into the title, it goes back to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, who was a Russian and he was in prison for his beliefs, et cetera, and just said that we should not live by lies. Well, Rod Dreher built this book off that. But what he did is he interviewed survivors of Russian totalitarianism, those in the Soviet bloc back then who have come to the West and he's asked them to tell their story about then and now, and what they are telling him in this book is that the first signs that they saw of coming totalitarianism in the old Soviet bloc, they see now in our culture. One of the primary ones, you probably know this term, was cancel culture. If you're opposed to to the main narrative that is being fed to our culture, if you oppose it at any point, you're cut off. Your voice is cut out, cancel culture. Said so that's where it started then. And so Rod Dreer's saying maybe that's what's what we're headed towards. So this is where, where, where uh, we begin to think wow, this is terrible. Where's it all going? Well, we're familiar with the last couple of years the riots in the streets. Most recently this year, the invasion of our southern border and the thousands upon thousands upon thousands who are now just crossing freely into our country from all over the world. They've had, what, 150 or so countries that have crossed over our border into our country. The New York Post is even saying that there's an ex-Border Patrol chief who warns of terrorists crossing into the U.S. through the southern border. Is that happening? We know we've heard reports that that's possible. So we ask the question of God... Much like Habakkuk asked, God, what's going on? What are you doing? What is this all about? And how does he answer? We know how he answered Habakkuk. God's answer, have you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever, Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned their natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, Hater of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And in verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Is that our culture? That's our culture. And it's a result of giving over to a people that which they desire. Saying, if you don't want me to be in charge, you be in charge. And this is what we get. So let's go back to Habakkuk. This is where we left off. Woe to the Chaldeans. That only took us through verse 19. Do you notice that that section stopped in verse 20? What does verse 20 say? Let me get back to Habakkuk, and I'll read it to you. Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him God is in control do you believe that God is in control the Chaldeans were about to invade Judah and take them captive they would be in captivity for 40 years God was in control and that was an assurance that he gave to Habakkuk so in chapter 3 we have Habakkuk's prayer. And in verse 1 The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. And he says verse 2 I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord revive your works in the midst of years in the midst of the years make it known in wrath. Lord, remember mercy. Then in verses 2 to 15, we just read 2, 3 to 15, he reviews the works of God. I'll just read a couple of lines out of that. Verse 8, did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the seas that you you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? And he and he he reviews a lot of the works of God. Verse 11, sun and the moon stood in their place. They went away, and the night was your arrows at the radiance of your gleaming spear. And so he goes all the way through verse 15, reviewing the works of God in his prayer. That would do us all some good to, to review the works of God, the greatness of God, the miracles of God, what he's capable of doing, what he has done. But then in verse 16, he confesses that he's still fearful. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my, my lips quivered. Decay enters into my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must... Oh boy, this is tough. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us? Habakkuk came to the conclusion there was nothing he could do about it. God had made up his mind that the Chaldeans were going to invade and take them captive. And so Habakkuk concluded, all I can do is wait. Wait for it to happen. But God is in control. Then in 17 and 18, he transitions into that. Though the fig tree should, be, should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the trees, though the field of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls yet, I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. God's doing what God's doing. But when Habakkuk got in touch with God and really thought through, who is this God? God is in control. I don't like what's happening, but I trust him. And then the famous verse that we've read, we've heard from time to time, maybe we've even quoted. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on the high places what that's a picture of is the goat walking up on a mountain top able to maneuver those tiny pathways on the on the, the the rocky parts of the outside of a cliff being far up above what's going on down below nobody can reach him because he's got a special ability to work up the side of a mountain And he's up there where there is peace, looking down over the devastation and knowing that God is in control. And then Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, you're familiar with those verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Great assurance. Great reminder. So now we come back to Habakkuk now. How do we we apply all of this? How would you think about all of this? Well, I'd say let's be reminded of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, and be reminded that God is still in control. Nothing has changed. God knows exactly who he's doing. God puts in power who he wants to put in power. God uses whoever he wants to use. God's in control. So that's one thing. This is something that at this same time as these thoughts were coming together, I was reminded of the serenity prayer that my father was carrying in his wallet when he died. I was 17. And the serenity prayer says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, you think about that. The serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know a difference. Men and women, brothers and sisters, there's some things we can't change. We can't. And they're happening all around us, all over the country, all over Oregon, all over the world. We can't change them. And the things that we cannot change, we need to be willing to say, God, give me the peace, the serenity to just accept them. So what I have done mentally, is I've created what I can can call a serenity bucket. And whenever something comes across the media, when somebody says, have you seen this? Can you believe this? I say, yeah, but there's nothing I can do about it. I take that and I put it in my serenity bucket because I can't do anything about it. National politics, the border situation, the increased threats now that seem to be coming out of China, Russia, Iran, whatever happened, the, the misjudgment or however you want to define what went on in Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago, what seems to be a move towards global uh, a globalization, gas prices spiking, the threat of taxes going up everywhere, inflation on the move. I have to put all of these in the serenity bucket because I have no control over those. I have to accept them. But there are things that I can potentially change. I look at these on two levels. I look them on the macro. Those are the big things, or what could be a big thing. The national things, the worldly things, the things that are happening on the high levels that I have no control over. Those are what I call the macro. I have no, no control over the macro. I can vote every two years or four years, but that's about it. But what about the courage to change the things that I can? That's where I can make a difference. And what are those things? The last place that I turn is the advice from the, the short book, the letter from Jude. one chapter just before revelation and here's what we see in verses 17 to 19 and i'm 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 stretching the application here a little bit but in verses 17 to 19 jude wrote but you beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our lord jesus christ that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own godly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, there's nothing there that says accept them. But my thought is, that's what is. We can't change what is. And it was predicted that this type of thing would happen. So to me, we accept what is. And I just, I've read into that verses 17 to 19 a little bit, so I admit that. But what about the things that we can change? Verses 20 to 23 starts talking about the things that we can affect. And this I call the micro. All of us can be involved in these things. First, he says in verses 20 to 21, keep yourself in the love of God by building up your faith and praying while waiting. Verse 20, but you, beloved, that's us, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So while we are waiting For eternal life, we are to keep building ourselves up in the love of God. So keep building yourself up and praying in the spirit. It begins right here. Second, be merciful to doubters. In other words, there are those who are uncertain about Jesus, uncertain about eternal life, uncertain about the truth of God's word. And there are those fence riders Be merciful towards them. Be patient towards them. Work with them. Pray for them. Be merciful to the doubters. Save others from the fire. These are those who are entrenched in their ungodly beliefs and their ungodly lifestyles. They are the ones that need to be confronted with the gospel, with the need to repent, with the need to turn from their sin. And then verse 23, at the end, have mercy on others with caution. Here's how it reads. Save others, snatching them from the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What's that garment polluted by the flesh? The idea here is hate the sin, but love the sinner. And so there are those that we are also to work with in this realm at all. So... Here's what I'm thinking. The micro? Think local. You and I aren't going to have a whole lot of effect on national politics. One way or the other, whichever way you lean, we're not going to have much of, say. We get a vote every two or four years, and we ought to do that, but most of that's out of our hands. Even as we get down to the state level, it's very difficult to have a major impact at the state level. So I'm thinking, think local. Think of your family. Those of you who are parents, grandparents, think of your kids. Think of your grandkids. How can you work with them? How can you help them live in what's going on in this culture? There's resources available. That practical guide to culture is one of them. There's other things that you can be involved with to help them think through how what's happening applies to God's word and how we are to live in this culture. Neighbors. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. That hasn't changed. How do we love our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Do you know that throughout history, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has made its major impact at times like this when they will do things that seem totally out of the ordinary. In the early Roman Empire, as young girls, baby girls, are being Thrown away, basically, because they wanted men to dominate. They didn't want to have too many women around. Those baby girls were being done away with, deposited. It was the Christians that came in and rescued them. This is interesting. Brought them into the church, raised them in the church, and then when men needed to find wives, where did they go? The church. And so because of that, Christians being well willing to go into the culture rescue those babies turned into a revival in Rome and, and we've got other examples where people who had fatal diseases or thought to be fatal diseases the secular groups in 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 Rome stayed away from them because they did not want to be infected believers went in and ministered to them and it's that kind of testimony that causes the church to rise and to, and to blossom and we've got Amazing opportunities now to do that type of thing. If we'll just see this as a time of opportunity. Lights are brightest when darkness is darkest. And we have an opportunity now to be salt and light in this very dark culture. Christian schools are flourishing. My daughter is on staff at a Christian school back in in Hillsborough. The applications are off the wall. People trying to, uh, trying to get out of the public school systems. This is an amazing time to be involved in ministry. Family, neighbors, friends. Think local. What about local community leaders? We think, oh, I don't want to get involved in politics. I understand that. But think about this. In Hillsboro, just a few months ago, was a school board election. There were four candidates that were right on, that we would want all four on the school board. Only one got elected. The other three would have been put on the school board if it was had 395 more votes, would have got all four. And only 18% of the population voted in that school board election. I think you see that what I'm saying. If the church had been informed and rallied and put their votes actively behind all four of those candidates, could have put four positive influences on the school board in Hillsboro. Now there's only one. So I'd say don't avoid local politics. This needs, to, this needs to start at the ground level and build up. Think local. What can we do here to affect our community right here. Our schools, right here. And don't forget, keep raising families. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. About a week ago, we had a family get together. One of our granddaughters turned 21, and she said, Grandpa, I consider you to be a, she said, a wise guy. I took that as a compliment. But she said, I'm having this discussion with another girl in my church about my age, And this other girl said, I don't want to bring any children into the world, into this world. And I said, Megan, what does God say? God said from the beginning, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's God's plan for you to have kids, raise a family, and have a positive influence on those around you through your family. So don't listen to the world in this way. So I think she accepted that advice. Keep raising families. Keep doing what is right. Keep doing what God has mandated us to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. That's still the mandate. We're to be engaged in what God has created. Secondly, keep making disciples. That commandment has not gone away. We're to keep making disciples locally. Don't think macro. Think micro. Think about your sphere of influence and what you're doing right here to continue making disciples. And remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's still building his church. We may not see it right here with our eyes down the street next door, but internationally around the world, God is building his church. And as we keep doing what we are called to do in this cultural moment, God will use us to continue to build his church. And remember what God said at the end of the book of Revelation, I will make all things new. It's all going to come around. Eventually, we're going to be living in that kingdom with him. We know the final chapter We know that we're on the winning team. And even though there may be bumps in the road and challenges along the way, in the end, we win. And so I would say, do not lose heart. Don't give up doing what you're doing. Trust God with the macro. Be involved in the micro. Keep ministering, raising families, making disciples, knowing that this is what God has called us to do. And finally back to Habakkuk 2.4 we're in the middle of all of that distress God says through Habakkuk man shall live by faith we are to live by faith knowing who's in control Philippians 4 rejoice in the Lord always so men I hope that's been helpful I hope that's been encouraging there's a lot of storm clouds out there but with every storm cloud there's a silver lining And if we look for it, we'll see it and see that this is really a wonderful opportunity to be involved in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've taken extra time. I'm sorry for that. I told Pastor I'd try to be done by 10 after. It's much beyond that. Thank you for your patience and enduring all of this. I hope it's been helpful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to think through what's going on in our world, in our culture, in our neighborhoods. And to understand that you're in control of all of this, that there's nothing that is surprising. Uh, But we pray for direction. We pray for peace within our own heart, within our own soul. And Lord, it is my prayer for each of these men and women to uh, be able to think through and apply the principles of that serenity prayer and to accept with peace by faith that which they cannot control but to have the courage to be involved in to be engaged in those things that they can have a say in and I think of that as the micro things. Lord help us think local friends, families, community, church and help us to think through and direct us in the way that we should go to truly be salt and light in this community, to be the church that you have called the church to be right here. And I want to pray for this body that that would be who they are. In Jesus' name, amen.